Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Podcast. Thrilled this morning to get a chance to visit with Todd Furness. Todd is both the founder partner of GTC Group. He's also an author of a, of a great new publication, a great new book, and he's going to talk us about that, The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. Todd, we're really going to ask you about both. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the Furness and the GTC Group, and then I'd love to hear about the book. Well, thank you so much for having me, first of all. And I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of Becker's. I get as many of the publications as I can. I, I am inundated, thankfully, for the newsletters that come out on a regular basis. And I regularly devour them. It's a great source. So thank you for all the work that you guys do in producing that. Um, so I, I put together a book called The 60% Solution because I, through the course of my life, I've touched the healthcare industry from a, def- a bunch of different places and angles. And I kind of figured, well, I've touched it from the technology perspective. I've touched it from the advisory perspective. I've touched it from the operations perspective. And I'm a lawyer by training, so therefore I wouldn't qualify by any stretch of the imagination as a doctor. But I I really felt like I had developed what I would call a worm's eye view of the industry. In other words, I've, ta- I've gotten a view of the, in- uh, the industry from the inside out. And after having gone through all that, I fig- I felt like it was not there was an opportunity to offer up a different perspective on the industry, and and then that perfectly linked to the investment uh, that we make and and hope to make in the future, where uh, we one of the industries we invest in is healthcare itself. So we have a model, uh, or at least I have a model, which is a little bit different than a lot of private equity guys. Uh, it's there are three legs to the model. There is research, which is what the book is all about, uh, and then there is quantification, uh, usually of the social ill that has just been researched. So in this instance, healthcare. And then the third issue is uh, the third leg of the stool is investments, where we try to not only invest ourselves but also encourage others to invest in hopefully. Uh, rectifying or fixing the social ill, if you will. So by way of example, we wrote the first ever healthcare inequality index, which measures the distribution of healthcare services, clinical services across the United States by hospital service area uh, and determine the affordability and the availability or the obtainability of those services across the United States. Found some very interesting things. Uh, So we rolled that into something called the Center for Impact Indices, which then measures those, uh, the first of of which will be healthcare. Um, Our second will be broadband. We've just come out with a report on broadband that looks at broadband in Dallas County specifically, but sets up a methodology for looking at that across the United States. And that'll be the the subject, hopefully, of a future book. And then uh, and then we'll make investments correspondingly. So research, quantify, and invest. Healthcare is top on the leader list right now, and uh, and the book has come out to really see if we can tackle healthcare in a different way. And, and talk about the authoring, the writing of the book, the process. Talk about that. Was that difficult? Do you sit down and write every morning? Do you dictate? Do you work on an old-fashioned laptop? What, what do you work on? How do you actually get the writing done? 
Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I don't intend to give props to the Microsoft family of products, but it was just me sitting down at a Surface tablet and doing research myself and writing, like Schroeder at the piano in a Charlie Brown cartoon. And I just kind of would write uh, as often as I could and and just uh, pumped out. I have a great editor and collaborator in the form of a woman named Nancy Hancock. She's very helpful. She's been a 20-year-plus industry veteran in the publishing industry for healthcare work. Uh, but it's been a delight to work with her, and uh, she helped me get the book out in a, in a narrative that, you know, hopefully is is productive but also contributes to the discussion in a in a very responsible way there it's really easy when you're sitting by yourself in a room to get a little off off center and become a little snarky or have a little too much attitude or think too highly of yourself and she was very helpful at at uh, keeping me restrained in, in, in talk about the 60 percent solution you, you talk about at least in, in the concept of purity of contract and we've gotten so far away from that you know somebody's buying healthcare insurance, but they're pretty far removed from how the money is spent. Um, nor do they really care other than the fact that the money's going up, that they're paying for health insurance is going up so quickly, so much, uh, more and more higher deductibles where you really feel like you're really buying health insurance, you know, often more for the big ticket problems than day-to-day problems. Talk about some of the disconnect and how some of that should be solved. Well, thank you for asking that because I think it's a really seminal question. And what I feel like has happened is we've completely disconnected the patient from the provider uh, in so many ways. Uh, First of all is the payment issue. But what people don't realize is that payment itself is a manifestation of a moral decision and a bargain. And so I've decided it's good to pay for healthcare, ideally, and then I'm going to pay what I think is fair under normal circumstances, for the service I'm, I'm given. Well, the problem is that we now have a different model altogether. If I And I've actually done this anecdotally. I've talked to probably 25 to 30 CEOs. And I just, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm that guy you hate to see at the cocktail party. And I'll say, hey, just out of curiosity, do you know how healthcare, uh, health insurance premiums are established? And the CEO will say, yeah, I don't know. I talked to my HR person. And then what I'll say is, well, who do you buy your health care insurance from? And they'll say, well, we get it from Blue Cross or we get it from United. We get it from Aetna or Cigna. And I'll say, actually, probably you don't. Unless you're a very large company, you probably buy it from a broker, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You get it from a broker. And then I'll say, and, and the broker gets it from the carrier, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, in most of the states, that that carrier then goes through a process with the State Department of Insurance to determine what that premium ought to be. So not only does the CEO not know who he's buying insurance coverage from for his or her employees, he doesn't even know how it's priced. And he also doesn't recognize that he has really very, very little say in the pricing itself. So the other side of that equation is the individual employee. The individual employee has a very happy day where they're offered employment by a company, but they don't have the ability in earnest to say, nah, you know, that plan is not very good, so I'm not going to do that. Or I want more of this and less than that. Or the price is too high. And so the employee doesn't have any negotiating power. The employer really doesn't have any negotiating power. And insurance companies are dealing directly with the state agencies to price this out. And so there's a there's a complete disconnect there on the pricing, which, but the individual employee is really looking at is what which of these subsets of plans I get to take, 
And then what they're really doing is they're managing to, to the deductible and the copay. And so what we've created is this model of a layaway plan for health as opposed to a true bargain for a service rendered. And so how do you get back there? Is it through Amazon making it simple, the pricing, so people can understand it by themselves? Because people now talk about, well, we shouldn't have employers providing coverage directly, but anybody who's an employee that gets coverage through their employer for all the faults knows that it's an easy way to do it. And so whereas, I mean, you pick three or four choices, you have three or four choices, you do it once a year, you make your choice, you're in for that year. You know, whereas when you ha- when you actually go into the market directly as an individual, it's impossible. It's literally brutal. And so, oh, yeah, you're absolutely how- right. You get crushed as the individual. So, and and uh, one of the things I hope is, that I've done here with my approach is I've created something that is an intentionally ideologically impure solution that is anchored in pragmatics that doesn't require a new paradigm shift to get done. There's a lot of big words, but here's what I mean by that. I believe that you still need to have private insurance available through employers. I also believe that the current version of the health savings accounts needs to be fixed in order to allow more money to go into those health savings accounts and for those health savings accounts to be correlated to the deductibles offered under the plans. So right now, they're, they're not correlated. So what ought to happen is you ought to be able to maximize your contribution or the employer's contribution to the HSA and then have a deductible that's maximized to the amount of the HSA contribution. And then those things could be used to offset each other. So if I have a, you know, my deductible is high, presumably because I'm first risk cap, uh, capital out, then that means that my, my premium should go down. So I'll give you an example. I talked to my son. I said, he's before he got married. I said, what's your deductible? He said, $10,000. Now, most of us couldn't afford $10,000 if that was our deductible. But if you had $10,000 in your HSA, you could have a $10,000 deductible. Now, here's the second part of that. I said to him, I said, well, how much do you pay in your monthly premium? $86. Now, if you could then take the $86 and pay that and have a $10,000 deductible while you've got a fully funded HSA, your risk is not materially different. You've used the benefits of tax protection for the money that's in there. And then I would submit that we should be able to keep that money, continue rolling it forward. And then, you know, when when the owner of the HSA, because it's owned by the individual employee, when the owner of the HSA passes, then they ought to be able to will that to whomever they want, presumably their children or their spouse. Right now, you can only leave it to your spouse. So that I would start with the H, with fixing the HSA. I'd leave the ability to uh, get your insurance through your employer. I'd change the deductible and correlate those so that it works a little bit more hand in glove. And then there are a few other things which are probably a lot more controversial, make me a lot less popular, even less popular at cocktail parties. And what are those things that make you less popular at cocktail parties? I mean, anybody that's asking anybody hard questions at cocktail parties is, is automatically unpopular. But, but, but tell us what else you would do that would further that lack of popularity. Because right now I'm following I mean, your son's got 12000 a year in total health care costs, which is $10,000 deductible plus the $80,000, $90 a month. So he's $11,000 or so in health care costs. Is that for him and his wife, or is that just for him? It was just for him. But if you look at it, he so gets the role. Whatever he does. 
Right. But at the same time, he gets to roll that year over year, that $10,000. So he, he's probably not going to use that. He's a, at the time he was a 30 year old male. So he's probably not going to use a thousand dollars out of the $10,000 in the HSA. So he rolls that to the next year and then the next year and then the next year. So he's building wealth in that or value in that HSA itself, because all the money that's in that HSA is tax protected. You can invest it and the investment proceeds are tax deducted tax protected and you can use it on healthcare expenditures, you know, into the future. So it's a pretty good, it's kind of like a forced savings program, but, but applicable primarily and exclusively to healthcare issues. So getting to the second point, what I would, will likely make me very unpopular, uh, is I advocate the taxation of benefits to the recipient. So right now, and this has been the case since FDR uh, put it into place in, in the 1943, I think it was Revenue Stabilization Act, he said, hey, look, at you, we're going to have a, a problem with employment coming up. Second World War is here, uh, and he, we had full employment. So right now we have about 62, 63% in, uh, participation rate in the U.S. labor force. We had, back then we had about 100% uh, participation, and we had a 1.3% unemployment rate. Unbelievable, right? Is the historic low. Uh, and what he said was, because of this, we're going to have wage inflation. And so in order to compete for talent, I'm going to say, look, you can't increase wages, but I'm going to let you compete by providing benefits packages uh, to your employees. So you'll compete on benefits, not on wages. And what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to, ta- I'm going to allow you companies to deduct that from your as a business expense, but I'm not going to tax the recipient on the benefits they're receiving. Yeah. So the point is, oh, it's very much like the salt taxes. So the deductibility of salt taxes went away. It was partly went away under the Trump administration. And, you know, if you're truly an economist and not a politician and not a flag waving Republican or progressive, you understand that it causes a cleaner tax system ultimately, because what it ultimately means is the state can't knock up their taxes knowing that it's being subsidized by tax deductibility at the federal level. And so right. again, I'm not advocating one or the other. There's a strong argument that it was too big a change because it wasn't gradual. People weren't prepared for it. But in terms of clarity of, of economics, it's clearly more clear and pure than what we had before, which is the full deductibility of state and local taxes, which is, you know, you know people can argue about all the way, all they want to, I'm not for and against it, but it does provide more purity if you get rid of it. What you're saying is, if you treat the benefit cost, if you could, you know, without it being screwed up and a true allocable cost to each employee as a taxable benefit, then an employee makes a true decision about would they rather have more salary or more benefits because right now the benefits are tax subsidized. And so you've got, you know, sort of, again, a lack of transparency, a lack of clarity, a lack of, a lack of purity in it. And so if you went back to a system, or, you know, where you're actually taxed, like you get like my, if my law firm pays for my parking, I get taxed on that benefit. Then I know there's a real right. cost to it because ultimately I'm paying tax on it like I would if I was getting compensated or cash. Now, what a fascinating perspective. And again, it, it, it's not so much that it's popular or unpopular. Certainly, it would make you unpopular because it would increase everybody's tax bills. But it might drive people towards more sanity in what they spend on health care because they'd be seeing real costs with that. And so it's a fascinating perspective. And so I, I've got to let you go, Todd. But what a, what a pleasure to visit with you and, uh, and to hear just some of the different thoughts on it and so forth. What a fascinating world you have between 
selling healthcare and being a private equity investor. I mean, what a magnificent sort of business and career you've built as well. And thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find the book, Todd? Where can people find your book? Well, there's a website called the 60percentsolution.com, and then there, I made it easier for people, and I've got another website called rethink.healthcare. And of course, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and other sites. Uh, but I got to tell you, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I, I'd welcome the opportunity to come back whenever you have time for me. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.